I'm some kind of excited today. Uh, it is July 1st. Do y'all know what July 1st is? That is Abigail Faith Stevens' birthday. Come here, pretty girl. Today, instead of picking on your mama at the first day of the first part of the sermon, I get to pick on you. She turned 13 today. We're not going to have bad teenage years, are we? She's pretty, isn't she, church? But the way that we're really pretty is when we're pretty inside and out. Isn't that right? Why don't we have the elders come pray and bless Abby to have a beautiful and quiet spirit and a tenacious heart after God for her 13th birthday. Amen. Amen. You got on big girl lipstick now, huh? Everything's changing. Yeah. Let's pray for her, elders, if you don't mind. You want me to sing the Abby song? No? You want, you want mama to sing the Abby song? It's okay. I love you. You are a father's joy, and you're going to continue to be the father's joy. Amen. Well, y'all want to get in the word? Hallelujah. So it's July 1st. It's 2018. Our message today is resurrection, the consequence of faith. So while we're looking at this, ti- this title today, this message today, we're going to start a series that is an eschatological series. Our hope then is that we demonstrate the end time significance of each topic, but also the precious practical daily consequence of understanding the topic. I don't think that it is worthwhile to blather on and on about theological principles that don't make it into your daily life. So everything that we speak about will have an end time significance, but a daily implementation. Amen. Part one is today. And uh, you see its title, Resurrection, the Consequence of Faith. Part two, we're going to cover the separation of the sheep and goats and talk about the consequence of deeds. In part three, we will cover every facet of the judgment to come, the various judgments to come, and the consequence of accountability. And in part four, we will go through tribulation events and talk about the consequences of thought. Is that an interesting series to you? We believe that it's born of God. It was spurred on by brothers in the church, but it was thoroughly vetted by the Holy Ghost in this last week when the pastor sat together and prayed together about what to cover. When we cover this subject, I want to show you a chart that will be filled in. This is biblical eschatology. And we want you to know that by the end of the series, everywhere there is a question mark, you should have an answer. That's kind of exciting, huh? Is that, is it, would anybody like to stand up and fill in all of the question marks at this point? Good. Then you're going to learn something. That is our hope. We are not teaching you for entertainment purposes. We're going to advance the kingdom through what we're learning. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Corinthians 15, 56. While you're in Corinthians 15, 56, I want to tell you that this is a direct quote from the book of Hosea. When you are reading from the Newer Testament, the Brit Hadashah, 
you are reading the expanded thoughts of the Tanakh, the Older Testament. And because of that, I want to give you the original thought first. Hosea 13 in verse 14 is a mirror image of 1 Corinthians 15, 56, where you are. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Man, isn't that good news? I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? The book of Hosea was reflecting a well-understood principle within Judaism so that Paul could simply quote a part of the verse and everyone understood the entire principle that was being explained. Looking at Paul's statement, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. I can't tell you how misunderstood this is. I don't even want to spend the time to go through the misunderstandings. Instead, I'd like to point out a few things about this as we move forward. The first, when Adonai told the man his will, that is equal to law. If God says to you to do anything, for you that becomes law. Why do you tell someone to do something? (laughs) You tell them to do something because you are pointing them in the right way. Something happens to that law when man sins though. When a man sins, the very law that was expressing God's will becomes proof that the man is in sin and out of his will. That's how something that was intended to be good for you becomes something that is pointing out negative attributes about you. The reason that this statement, the sting of of death is sin and the power of sin is law, it goes like this. The reason sin is the sting of death is that you have completed your life when you've died. And if you have sinned, then you're outside of God's will. Doesn't that sting? When is the last time that you went to a funeral? (laughs) They hire puppets to try to take away the sting. To pretend like someone was righteous that was not righteous. That really stings. It leaves the world without hope. Today we're going to discuss a hope that swallows up death forever. It's the hope of the Bible. It's not the invention of a pulpit. It's not designed to get you to an altar. It's not designed to get money from your pocket and into a plate. It's the hope of humanity. It is not something that builds institutions. It is God's answer to our problems. And it is the resurrection of the dead. You usually hear this topic once a year at Easter. Wait until you see the extent to which every portion of the Bible, whether the law, the prophets, or the writings, is inundated with it, surrounds it. It's so central to the hope of the Bible that if you remove it, the Bible is little more than a collection of wise sayings. We're going to begin in Genesis 3.20. Actually, I probably ought to summarize some events. So let's start in Genesis 2.16. Say there when you were there. In Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Is that a negative thing? I was just on a, a cruise. It looked like a NASCAR convention. It was kind of scary to me, honestly. I never saw so many cut-off jeans and um, not enough material involved in clothing before. It got a good picture of what the deck is like all over the ship. You know, the command you are free to eat 
is the kind of thing that unites people from every background. When the Lido deck opens on the ship and it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, lines of every shape, color, size, background, political orientation form immediately. Nobody goes, oh, I can't believe that you've given me a rule that the buffet is now open. (laughs) Nobody does that. It's pointing you towards something that's good. The first statement that God ever makes after putting man in a garden is, you are free to eat. And then he puts qualifications with it. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And what's coming next? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, it was not necessary that God tell you what happens. That was a benefit. It was not necessary that he tells you the consequence of your action. It should have been enough that he simply said, just don't. I remember watching a young man come and flirt with a single girl in the church. And, you know, he, she just looked right at him as he opened his mouth and said, just, just don't. Just, just don't. She didn't need to tell him what was going to happen. She just said, don't do that. Right? She was trying to spare him from what was going to happen. Somehow or another, as God communicates this command, something happens to the human race. I want to summarize it in seven steps quickly. That way we don't have to spend our whole day in the first two chapters of Genesis. The serpent directly contradicted God by saying, you will not die. In other words, the serpent sins before anybody else does by saying what God said would happen will not Happen. Can somebody say that sin? The second thing, the woman was tempted and collapsed under the pressure. When told that God is not telling the truth, she buckled and she sided with an enemy. She in turn presented it to her husband who also sinned. God prescribed a curse upon the serpent and warfare between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. How many sermons have you heard on that in your life? Warfare between these two. The serpent received a curse. You know who didn't receive a curse? The woman. The man. Neither one of them did. In fact, God prescribed adversity for the woman in childbearing for a purpose. The the hope was that because what he was asking her to do was difficult, she would rely upon him. Which is where she had made a mistake. God also cursed the ground, not the man, but the ground, and prescribed adversity for the man in his labor. Lastly, maybe most importantly, when Adam heard that the ground was cursed, when he heard that the snake was cursed, but that adversity in their life was for a purpose. Somebody say adversity Adversity. is for a purpose. He had the most unusual reaction. Can you imagine that you're before a judge about to be sentenced? And you start jumping up and down for joy when you hear the sentence. See, man is told that if you do this, you will die. And watch what Adam does in the very next passage. Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve. Hey, Ibrahim, is that good news? Yeah, man, you, you have literally a 6,000-year-old tradition going. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all of the living. This is such a clear 
and present promise in the scripture that the contradiction ought to cause the reader to, to engage the text in a new way. The phrase in Hebrew is em kau chai, mother of all that is alive. This doesn't mean that she's just going to have children. It means that on the day that death was promised to mankind, Adam heard a different promise. He heard a remedy for death. Somehow or another, I'm warning you up front, Christianity has greatly drifted from the promise that the Bible develops as a remedy for death. How many of you want to go to heaven? Remember that. Remember that you put your hand up. I also want to go to heaven if I die before it gets to me. Having said that, he does not look at the woman and say, Hey, you're going to die, but good news. In these three steps, you can be guaranteed an eternal life on some other planet. He never says anything like that. In fact, what you're going to find out is the resurrection of the dead is the eternal life that the Bible promises. I want to begin to prove that to you. I want to show it to you most in the law where I think you'll have the hardest time finding it. And then in the prophets where it's stated so explicitly, I won't show you 35 scriptures because if the one I show you doesn't do it, then the 35 wouldn't either. And then also in the writings. And I want you to notice where the hope of Israel is, and we will make practical application for this. Beginning with Genesis 17:8, we're speaking about Abraham now. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien... What was Abraham? Alien. An alien. Anybody want an alien status? Where are you at, Carlos? <laughs> Carlos is with us till at least December of 2019. <laughs> there is a kingdom that is above the kings of this age. There is a rule that is above the order that we are seeing going on in the natural order of things. But the kingdom that is above and the order that is above is headed this way. It will be established on earth and the knowledge of God will cover the entire earth even as water covers the seas. In Genesis 17, 8, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien... I will give you as an everlasting, I'm sorry, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. When Jews heard this, starting with Abraham, who is not yet called a Jew, just a descendant of Eber, he knew something had to be true. You may see how many generations of your family. Maybe you get to see your son and your grandson, and your great-grandson. Anybody in the room got great-great-grandchildren that you you have alive? Okay, very often we don't get past the fourth generation. How does Abraham, along with all of his descendants, inherit the land that God is giving them? See, he didn't inherit it in his lifetime. Neither did his descendants inherit it in their lifetime. To this day, they do not possess all of the land that is promised them. But they are promised to receive it, Abraham along with his descendants, and that it will be forever. This promise is restated. By the way, in the same promise it says, I will be their God. There is a day coming when not only will Israel 
be a nation ruling the land that God has given them with Abraham in resurrected bodies, but also God will be the God of every one of them. This promise goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 26, going to Isaac, his son, stay in this land, this is verse 3, for a while. I'm sorry, stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. Who was the promise given to? Abraham. And it's being restated to Isaac, but the fact that Abraham dies doesn't take away the oath. Are you seeing how the train of thought develops? If something's promised to your great-great-grandfather and it didn't happen and it has to happen alongside you, then there yet remains that promise in the future. That's how the thought goes. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give them all, say all, all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements. What was the requirement on Isaac? See, Abraham already had the promise. Isaac was a recipient of it. I'm saying this to you, Isaac, because Abraham and I already have this agreement. My commands, my decrees, and my laws. It was said again to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, Why is God speaking about two generations before? Because the promise is still in effect. It's still lasting. Nothing has happened to it. Whether Abraham is alive or not does not affect it because in God's eyes, he is alive and will yet be even more alive. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. There, what you're hearing is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with all of their descendants, have to be together in the land and blessing all of the earth. Friends, that's never happened. It's never happened, and it is the hope and the promise that the Bible lays out beginning with Israel. Abraham was not told, believe this, and you will go to heaven. Isaac was not told, believe this, and you will go to heaven. In fact, some of the finest Bible scholars I've ever known, young, smart men, researched every single reference for the word heaven or heavens today, and could not find a single statement in the Tanakh that says, die, And go to heaven. Not one time. And yet this is all we tend to hear in church, isn't it? Hey, believe on Jesus and when you die you'll go to heaven. What if that is not what Jesus taught people to believe on? Would that be problematic for the church world today? When you aim for something other than what God has aimed at, you often get results that God didn't intend. I want to read to you a first century commentary on the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you like to see a first century commentary on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You can find it in the letter to the Hebrews. It's Hebrews 11 and verse 17. And listen to how this is said so that you don't think that I'm stretching the bounds of a scripture. 
By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Put that in perspective of what you've heard. He and his descendants are supposed to inherit the land together forever. And now he's being told to kill his only descendant? Can you imagine how hard that would be? Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In the first century, they understood that Abraham's faith was in the resurrection of the dead. They understood that Isaac's faith was in the resurrection of the dead. They understood that Jacob's faith was in the resurrection of the dead. If you go with me to Israel, we will go and stand at the cave of Machpelah. And you will still see that people from all over the world come to see the one place that Abraham bought in his lifetime. A marker where his body went in the ground... Because he was going to come out of the ground in an eternal state. You cannot find any monument to Abraham's hope to go to heaven. Is that surprising to anyone here? Because I don't hear it preached very often in other places. Have you heard your entire life that if you just believe these three things, you'll go to heaven? And that is the point in most people's mind about Christianity. Let's look at Genesis 50, and then we will begin to move more quickly. In Genesis 50 and verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die so that I can go to heaven. Not what he said? Are you sure? Does anybody have a 2018 comic book version of the Bible that you bought at a local Lifeway? No? I just want to make sure we're reading from the same text. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you hear the repetition? And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph was so sure that there would be a resurrection of the dead that after he was dead, he cared very much where his bones resided. Have you ever seen people argue about what happens to, you know, at a funeral? My, my father-in-law was here earlier and because of an illness, he had to step out. He prescribed exactly what he would like to see done at his funeral. Every step. I mean, songs that I will never sing. Um, things that he does not want me to say or do because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Like, don't stand up and say these kind of the things that we're going to do, no matter what. You know why? Because his life will already be over at that point. And I'm going to tell people about the way that I loved him. I'm going to tell people about the godly legacy that he left. There, there's no question that's going to happen. But he prescribed to me in great detail what must be done and could not be done at his funeral. You know what I did? I sat there and smiled and shook my head and said, it'll be all right because you'll be dead. Why would you care what happens to your bones after you're dead? 
Because he knew death was not the end of him. He knew that he was not being transported to some other planet called heaven. What he knew would happen is the very same bones that went in the ground would come out of the ground transformed. Joseph knew that. They carried his bones for 40 years in a desert. Do you know how awkward that must be? Hey man, what are you carrying? Oh, I got Joseph duty this week. There's such a message in this for Christians though. Not long ago, maybe a couple years ago, I read an article and then I went to see the actual tree. There was a Judean palm seed called the Methuselah palm seed. It was 2,000 years old and discovered in an archaeological dig. And when they planted it in Israel, Methuselah sprouted and is a tree bearing fruit today after having lied in the dirt for two thousand years what is nature teaching you what is the holy scripture teaching you if you carry around a promise although it looks dusty although it looks dead god is able to make it come to life again your life is not about being transported out of your problem and into a better place. Your life is about being transformed through your problem. That our God faces death in the eye and says, I am big enough to overcome this. He is not trying to teach you to escape from difficulty. He is teaching you to transform the difficulty around you into something that is glorious. Abraham was never... Looking for a way out. Isaac was never looking. Oh, well, I'm just leaving this old stinking world behind. He believed this world belonged to him. He believed he was God's agent on the earth to change this world. And so did Jacob. And so did Joseph. This is so well understood in the text of the Torah. It's so implied that you can find Endless Midrash, that is a rabbinic sermon. Endless Midrash on the ways in which the resurrection is represented. Have you ever thought about the staff of Moses? We're holding the staff. Staffs in the Bible almost always represent the righteous requirements of God. When you throw it to the ground, what did Moses' staff become? Y'all talk to me today. Snakes represent sin. The righteous requirements of God thrown to the earth and became sin and death. What happened when he picked it back up again? It became a staff again. Can you see resurrection in that? How about the second sign that Moses was given for Israel? He takes a hand and he puts it into the bosom of the father of the nation. If you don't understand King James, he put it next to his heart above his great big belly. And when he put it there and pulled it out from the presence of the Father, it became leprous. But when it was drawn back to the presence of the Father, it became white as snow. Do you see that? Do you remember what the third sign was? It was when he took water and he poured it on the ground and it became blood. He was teaching you what would be necessary for the other two signs to be completed. See, throughout the Torah... The theme is resurrection. You know what you will never find? You will never find that their hope was off-world somewhere. That their hope was ethereal somewhere. Going to sit on a cloud and play a golden harp as a fat, naked baby. 
That was never in the hope of Israel. Have you seen that hope displayed in churches though? Is that our iconography? Is, is that what our children's art is like? Is that what Christian books are decorated with? But it's not the hope of the Bible. It is not. It has never been. And in the end, it will not be. Let's go to Isaiah 26 while we listen to the air compressor fill uh, our suite over there. When you get to Isaiah 26, discover the 18th verse and land on it with me. Rob is there. Are you getting there, Cho? <laughs> Cho said, that's a lot of pressure, Eric. Cho's getting to be a pretty handsome man, isn't he? He's learning his word, got a good job now, and he's single. It's going to be a good year, Cho. Abimbola's trying to beat you to the uh, punch, though. Wherever your hopes are, no matter how beaten, no matter how tattered, you may be carrying them around so long that the bones have even fragmented. God is able to put them back together. That is the hope of the Christian life. That's the hope of Judaism. Sometimes you're pulverized by the world to the point that you can lose the hope that you started with. You might even adopt another, like if I could just get the right kind of job. If I could just get the right kind of home. If I could just, I don't know, become like a doorkeeper in heaven, then I would be satisfied. This is an insult to your design. You were made to rule this planet. You were made to be princes with God on this planet. You were made to spread his image to every corner of the globe. No part of you was designed to live in an ethereal spirit world any more than a goat was designed to be a great white shark. This is removing you from the environment you were created for and supplanting your call and design and putting you somewhere else. And it is an insult to the design of the Bible. Are you in Isaiah 26? Verse 18 We were with child and we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. Can anybody feel despair gripping the audience? Man, anybody married in here? Is it incredible how the right word from a beautiful loving spouse like the one that I've got? I mean, that's Jennifer if you... Don't know her. She's the pretty blonde on the front row. She's a grandma now. A really sexy grandma. I got to tell almost everybody on the boat that. And uh, it's interesting to see how people react. The only thing funnier is when you tell them that you're a pastor after they've been talking for 20 minutes. That is so much fun. It, it, it brings, brings a certain... They're actually looking for a life raft to just jump off the ship, you know. Some of them will probably look us up and watch this sermon based on our conversations. Have you ever noticed that when you really have a lot of hope in something and there is an assault on that, like, I don't know, husband, you just had your mind on your beautiful wife. You were so excited about going out to dinner or whatever it might be. And you slip into an argument and something yucky gets said. It is like thousands of pounds on your chest. You would gladly fight with a whole football team to not feel what you're feeling. 
And to say you're sorry or to repent or to even comprehend what it is that you have done that evoked this seems beyond your grasp. That is exactly how Isaiah is feeling right here. We've strained. We've tried. We had all of the labor pains. We did the work. And it didn't work. Come on now. You don't feel that way about any of the promises? You didn't fight for a healing and not see it? You didn't fight for an inheritance and not get it? You didn't labor for somebody in the kingdom and not see the payoff? See, when your hope is otherworldly, then you just want to get there. When your hope is resurrection, you're like, I may not have seen it with my eyes in this world, but in the world to come, which is the same ball of dirt, I will see that healing. It teaches us to persevere. It teaches us that it's not over yet. Somebody say it's not over. Single ladies, say it with me. It's not over. Say it louder. It's not over. I want to hear it from every side of the room. It's not over. You're not allowed to give up on God. If He's promised you something, He's the God that raises the dead. The fact that the world has beaten you, has pulverized your promise, and you're carrying around that hope like a dead man's bones does not mean that God will not bring it to life. That is the hope that our faith is is bound to, is tied up in, is permeated with. Verse 19, Isaiah makes his turn. But your dead will live. Could there be a more fantastic statement in all of the Bible than that? How dead is your promise? But your dead will live. How dead is your situation? But your dead will live. When you think there is no hope for your spouse, the dead will live. When you think there's no hope for you, the dead will live. When there's no hope in the world around you, the dead will live. It is the answer to despair. Do you know what is not an answer to despair? Transport me from this problem. Put me anywhere else. Lord, change my environment. You'll carry despair wherever your new environment is. We started in a pretty good environment, huh? You're free, man. Oh, you can eat buffet. Just stay away from the one area marked off over there. That should have been no problem. But death and sin made it a huge problem. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. What will rise? What will rise? Oh, come on now. You're going to hear many different theories about the resurrection of the dead. Notice that the, prop, that the prophets clearly say your bodies will rise. Not your spirit, not your nefesh, not your psyche, not your soul, not the thought of you, not the legacy of you. Your body, your physical body will rise. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. What you were hoping for, for just a nation, God is going to do for a whole world. See, in this prophetic passage, we have a promise that the hope of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not only alive, 
It's alive for more than they realized. For the entirety of the world, there is a hope of the resurrection. Do you miss somebody that went on before you? Do you hope to get to heaven so that you can see them again? All of those are sweet thoughts. And I'm not saying that some of us won't. But I'm saying that is a temporary way station because heaven is headed this way. They will rise upon the earth. Look at Job 19 to hear Job say it. Now we've gone law, prophets, writings. When you get to Job 19, proudly say you're there. Come on, Nolan. Job 19 in verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. Why was it ever a question? What is Job contemplating? What has Job gone through that pulverized him and beat him and made him feel like a bag of bones? Why is he worried about whether or not his Redeemer lives? Because he needs him and it looks as if he's nowhere to be found. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, somebody say in the end. He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Tell me that Job's hope was not in the resurrection. In this passage, it's possible to see the resurrection of the Redeemer. Some question as to whether or not he's alive. But I know that he's alive and he will stand on the earth. Some question as to not whether you will live. But I know that I will live and with my own eyes. Not somebody else's eyes. Even though my skin is destroyed, I will stand on the earth with him and see him. Do you hear a bodily resurrection in the book of Job? Do you hear the hope? Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being expressed in the mouth of Job. And there's an argument as to whether Job came first or Abraham came first. Because this is the hope of all mankind since the Garden of Eden. Eve would be the mother of all who are alive. Go with me to Daniel 2 and we will leave the writings from Daniel 2. Not 2, Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 2. Lessons from a dyslexic pastor. <laughs> Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes. How many? Multitudes. Who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the book of Daniel, we see that not only will the dead raise, but they will raise with different prospects after resurrection. Come on, now that ought to be scary. You have been taught a kind of Mount Olympus Christianity for most of your lives. You've been taught it by the culture around you. You've been taught it by pastors who frankly don't know what they're talking about. And what they teach you is that you die and you are rushed to a judgment standing before pearly gates where a decision between heaven and hell is made and you just want to get into heaven. That is nowhere taught in the 39 books of the Older Testament. And it is not taught in the 27 books of the New. It is a pulpit invention. 
Now, the Bible does say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if from that you want to derive everything else, that's okay. If I die, I have no question that I'm standing in the presence of God. But it is not my ultimate destination. In Daniel, what we see is that eternal life is always focused upon the state of your actual body for eternity. That's what it is. Eternal life always has to do with after you are dead, what happens to your physical body for an eternity. Say that with me. Physical Physical body. body. That is not to say that it is not also spiritual. You want to see what that is like? Have a vision with an angel present. He is both spiritual and if he hits you with his sword, you will be very much dead. Ask in a sheriff's men. Angels show up all of the time in the scripture in both physical and spiritual bodies. Nobody thinks of them as ghosts. They are real, tangible entities. And you will find out that is true with the resurrection of the dead. But I would like to bring this into the teachings of Jesus. Is that okay? Let's first address the Beatitudes. Jesus' sermon uh, in Galilee on a mountainside. I've sat there and I hope you'll get to sit there too. It's quite, it's quite an interesting time to sit on a hillside with disciples and watch myriads of tour buses go to the wrong building. A building that people have spent millions of dollars on. When the actual spot is a pile of rocks that nobody spent any money on. It's very much like the kingdom. It's amazing that when men get involved, how strangely wrong things get. In Matthew 5 and verse 3. Are you there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somebody say of, Of. not in. There is a misunderstanding that has been propagated because of biblical ignorance. We have turned the kingdom of heaven into a kingdom located somewhere else called heaven. Of means the kingdom that is of the same substance as it is a kingdom patterned after. It is, a, it is actually what Genesis was describing. We have God who is represented by the spirit that is hovering over the waters. And he puts on the earth his agent to extend his rule. Jesus is teaching, blessed are those who are crushed, pulverized, broken in their spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that's king... Rules like things are in heaven. And that kingdom is being extended to the earth. Can anybody point to heaven? If you're in Australia and you point up, and you're in North America and you point up, are we at all pointing to the same place? This is lunacy when it comes to it. We're speaking about a king's dominion. We're speaking about the rule and the reign Of a monarch. We are not speaking about uh, the dark side of the moon. Or something on the other side of Pluto. Or anything that they may tell you on TV to get you to give money for their $54 million jet. What I'm stressing to you is that the goal of Christianity is not about a location. It's about a relationship. We are striving wrongly when we are striving to be in a place called heaven. We are striving rightly when we are in accord on earth with the principles of heaven. Does that make sense to you? 
If you don't believe me, skip down two verses, land on the fifth verse, and somebody explain to me how you reconcile the location problem with Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the Well, how's that going to work out? There are no meek people in heaven. Poor meek people got screwed. I'd have rather been poor. You see the problem here? It's because the meek and the poor or poor in spirit are essentially speaking of the same population. You are misunderstanding the location of the heavenly kingdom. It is on earth where man was given and man was always intended to rule. If you just can't wait to leave this old stinking earth behind, you're missing the promise of God. And the problem is thinking like that, putting your faith in that, has a consequence. A very real consequence. When something is not going well in one relationship, you will just look for another location. When something is not going well in your home, you will just look for another home. When something's not going well in your job, you'll just look for another job. Of course, if you believe that you were given ownership over what was put under your dominion and it was your job to transform it, leaving is not an option. There is no back door. There is no plan B. There is no escape route. You are put there as God's agent of change. And the kingdom becomes like yeast working its way through the whole loaf, not the constant search for a different bread factory. See, these things that we put our faith in have a very real world effect on how we face our daily trials. You may not be aware of it, but Jesus was quoting the 37th Psalm. In fact, almost every beatitude is quoting the 37th Psalm. I want to read you just a little bit of the 37th Psalm. Verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Who said that? Jesus or the writer of the Psalms? The answer, both. How about 37.27? Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. How long will you dwell in the land? But when do you die and go to heaven? See, that was not within the framework of biblical faith. How about 37.29? The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Not within the biblical framework that you would simply fly away to heaven. That was nowhere in anyone's thought, nowhere in their minds, and cannot be demonstrated in scripture. In fact, the word resurrection in the newer Testament, anybody want to know how many times it appears? It's 40. It's almost like you're being tested with something. When you look at the 40 times, beginning with Matthew 22, 20, 22, 23, which we're not turning to, and ending in the book of Revelation with chapter 20 and verse 6, you find 40 occurrences and 40 verses. It's important that we understand that neither Jesus nor the apostles preached the hope of the Tanakh as a Greek myth. They were not looking to go to Mount Olympus. What they were looking to do was inherit the land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised. They wanted to be in bodies that did not have the death problem. When you examine all 40 references in the Bible, it's New Testament. What you find is that there's 28 of them that do not relate to Jesus. In other words, of 40, 28 are speaking about the resurrection in general. 
that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, a resurrection in general. Twelve of them are speaking of Jesus' resurrection or the resurrection that is found in Jesus. Forty times the Newer Testament is speaking of resurrection. Twenty-eight of those times, it's not talking about Jesus being resurrected at all, although there's a relationship to that. It's talking about you being resurrected. In the twelve times that Jesus is mentioned, most of them are saying, in Jesus, you will be resurrected. You know what you can't find one time in the New or Old Testament? Believe on Jesus, die and go to heaven. You will not find that phrase. Not in the Old, not in the New. You cannot even approximate that phrase. But we hear it repeated over and over and over. Now, if you're already offended with that thought, if you die, I hope that you go to heaven. If that's how you think about it. That you're enveloped in the cloud of witnesses. That you're in the very rule and reign of God. But the question is, is that somewhere else or was that always supposed to be here? And how are we surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that is heaven if heaven is somewhere else? Are you following me? Didn't Jesus show up and say the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near? Or another way to interpret the very same Greek phrase is the kingdom is enveloping you. See, it was about extending the rule of God. And if your mind is set to a different proximity, then you will always seek a different proximity when a problem enters your life. If your mind is set to a different relationship... That when problems enter your life, you seek to deepen your relationship with the Lord to be transformed through them. Come on, tell me I'm not preaching to you. I know what it is like to be under attack. I know what it's like to just wish that you could step out of the ring for a minute. That's all you're ever going to hear me say about that. I know what that's like. That is not what we do. If you move, it's because God himself moved you. It's because God himself has said the season is not right for their transformation. And I'll transform you in a different way, in a different place. But we are not a kingdom of quitters. We are not a kingdom of ease seekers. We are not a kingdom that is simply looking for a train ride to some better, easier place. We are a kingdom of priests transforming everyone and everything around us. That is the hope of Christianity. I want to show you that in Acts 24. Acts 24, verse 14. You're there? However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a cult or a sect. Paul was a cult leader too. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, I guess they're not abolished or annulled or otherwise set aside. And I have the same hope in God as these men. Who are these men that he's talking about? Are they not the Jews that are standing around him? Even the Jewish leadership that is not yet Christian. Christianity did not present a different hope than Judaism. That's a mistake. Paul said, clearly, I have the same hope as they do. 
Christianity presented a different personage that you had to be in to achieve the hope of all mankind, which is resurrection. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul had the same hope as Israel. Israel had the same hope as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At no time does Paul say that he wishes he could die just to go to heaven. That's not what he taught about. That's not what he preached about. Nor did the other apostles. Watch it in Acts 17 and verse 18. Say there when you're there. Just turn a few pages to the left. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, 1718, began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and, somebody say and, and the resurrection. Notice he's not preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection. He's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That's because you cannot be resurrected from the dead unless you are obedient and following Jesus Christ. But what is being taught and what we have believed in all too many instances is that belief on Jesus constitutes going to heaven. That is not what they were preaching. They weren't preaching it at the end of Acts. They weren't preaching it in the middle of Acts. Let's look at the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 4 and verse 2. Keep turning to the left. They were greatly disturbed, speaking of Jewish leadership, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Immediately after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his apostles began preaching in the very same city. There is only one man that has ever shown mastery over death. And if you trust in him and are obedient to him, he will cause you to be raised from the dead just like him. Never at any time did they teach believe on Jesus so that you can just get the hell out of here. But that is essentially what is presented all over the world. But it's not in the Bible. Does it offend you that I say hell? That is what everyone's trying to escape. They would rather leave everybody else in hell so they can go to heaven. When our job was to transform that which had become hellish into something of heaven. Let's look at John 6 together and you'll hear it in red letters. John 6 verse 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall go to heaven. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. But Eric, isn't that just heaven? What's the rest of the phrase say? And I will raise Him up at the last day. What does eternal life look like? Being raised from the dead in a body that will never die. 
Jesus Christ had eternal life when he was not standing in another location. He was standing on the earth, raised from the dead. A body that cannot die. A body that the Bible says was indestructible. He was in eternal life while he was standing resurrected still with his feet in the sands of Israel. See, eternal life is not somewhere else. Eternal life is right here. It begins right now with the redemption of your very spirit. The mastery of your spirit over your soul and your spirit and your soul seeing your body transformed at the redemption of our bodies. How about John six forty four? while you're there? Just hear Jesus repeat himself a little bit so I don't feel alone in the room. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Why is he saying that? Why doesn't he just say, and they will go to heaven? Because they had no concept of that thought process at all. It's a Greek corruption. Another way to say it, it's a Hellenization. You could have fun with that word if you wanted to. John six fifty four. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Some have made that eating and drinking a cracker. But that's not what he's talking about. Eternal life is followed by this phrase, and I will raise him up at the last day. Tell me, saints, do you not hear three times in one chapter Jesus say eternal life is the same as being raised up? Do you hear it? Do you want me to keep going on that thought or can we move on? Can we move on? Being raised up at the last day is eternal life. When are you raised up? At the last day, which begs the question, last day of what? The last day of this age is something that the Jews call the day of the Lord. Yam Yahweh. The day of the Lord has to do with the appearance of Jesus Christ. It's the last day of this age. In the coming weeks, we will go through great lengths to prove that to you. To show that to you in many, many different passages in many different ways. But the last day is not the last day of our existence because remember, we exist eternally. The last day is not the last day of God's existence. He exists eternally. It's the last day of this age as we know it because we will forever be transformed here on the earth. Does that make sense to you? Hear it in Revelation 20 and verse 4. Leave that there if you don't mind. I see people taking pictures. You're going to see it a lot more in the weeks to come. Revelation 20 and verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. That's an interesting way to die. Who is still beheading people all over the planet today? How about that? And because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This passage lets us know that there is a first resurrection, but there is also a second resurrection, and they are 1,000 years apart. I didn't invent that. I didn't make it that way because I wished it to be that way. 
That is how John received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it involved seeing Daniel 12 verse 2 with a thousand years in between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of those who were rising to shame and contempt. Praise God that John saw it, that Jesus sent an angel to bring it to him because it helps us understand what we're pointing at. You are not waiting to die and go to heaven. You are being transformed, transforming the world around you. And even if your body dies, even if they have coded and given up on you, you will live again. If you're in this room, then most of you have known D.D. Richards. We watched D.D. die and watched D.D. come back to life and stayed alive long enough to go a week and say goodbye to every one of her family members, to worship, to hug and kiss her husband and say goodbye and transition from this life into the very presence of God while her body waits to be renewed. You, you got to know her. You got to see that. If you have ever prayed for somebody that was a believer and you loved them and you with all of your heart said, you know, Jesus is the resurrection and the life and you were praying for that person to be raised from the dead and you think your prayer has not been answered yet, it'll be answered on the same day that Joseph is raised from the dead. It'll be answered on the same day that Abraham is raised from the dead. It'll be answered on the same day that Isaac is raised from the dead. It said, well, they prayed and it didn't work. No, you just have to stand in faith until that day. If you've ever stood and prayed for the healing of a believer and you're like, I, this is supposed to work. Why is it not working? No, it will work. It will work on that day. God may choose to bring that sooner, but it will work on that day. Saints, you don't have a problem that will not be cured by the resurrection of the dead. But we need to be aiming at transformation and stop pointing to transportation. See, we don't need a new scenario. We don't need a new situation. We don't need a new set of digs. What we need is an entirely new and deepened relationship with Jesus Christ. When you get that, when you have that, you begin to see the whole world around you different. I want to talk to you about the type of body that you will raise in. Because this has been being debated for 2,000 years and it ought not be. It comes from a lack of understanding of God's word. The type of body that you will raise in, we've covered in Genesis 17, Genesis 26 and 28. Their resurrected body was to inherit and possess Land, not clouds. They are not naked cherubs sitting playing golden harps. And by the way, why are all those angels white? It's not a, isn't it a fair question. Jesus wasn't white, not like you think of white. Is it not a fair question? If we reinvent the biblical story to be a biblical story that is more palatable to us, what happens if we're telling news we think is good and is not the good news? In Genesis 17, 26, and 28, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with all of their descendants, were going to raise and rule and reign over a specific plot of land. Do you know why that's important? Because it lets you know that life in the age to come is still going to involve living on the earth, 
on land, doing tasks that we were created to do. Have you ever wondered what you would do in this mythical uh, off-world experience for an eternity? And you always get the same lame answer, we'll worship God. They're not now, but they will then. For millennia. Are you kidding me? God created you to accomplish. He created you to do work. He made you to do work. He delights in it. He rested from His work when He created you for doing. Do you remember we covered that a few weeks ago? Your life is not without purpose now, and it will not be without purpose in the age to come. In fact, you fulfilling your purpose now will probably determine in every way what your purpose is in the age to come. We're going to see that in the scripture. In Genesis 50, you see it implied that transformation of Joseph's real bones into a resurrected body that inherits the land. Right there you have 17, 26, 28, and 50 all in one book that are pointing to a resurrection that involves someone standing on the earth and ruling over a certain group of land. Isaiah 26 requires the earth to give birth to the dead and uses the phrase, their bodies will rise. Not they're going to receive some new spirit body and be a ghost. Their bodies will rise. Do we have the right to change Isaiah? Whatever is written after Isaiah must be understood in the light of Isaiah. So if we find out that the body that rises is a spiritual body, it is a spiritual body that is in some way still their original body, perhaps glorified or transformed. There is no in in Job 19, in my flesh, he says, with my own eyes, I will see God. Does that sound like he received some kind of special ghost-like body? There is no room in the Tanakh for a spiritual resurrection that is not material, physical, and visible. Say that with me. Material, Material. physical, Physical. and visible. See, all of those things are requirements for understanding the resurrection of the dead. And when you change those things, you say that you believe in a resurrection, but you believe in something else. Something more Gnostic in nature. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're at the hour and seven minute mark, which means that I'm going to start to work towards a close. And I want you to get the practical portions of this that you need to get. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. By the way, are you learning? Is there anybody here that has not learned anything? You can be bold. You can raise your hand. If there's not anything that I've said that hasn't caused you to think a new thought, then raise your hand let me know because... I'll know what to include next. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? It's almost as if Paul anticipated what would happen in the church. With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Our first analogy, a farming analogy. The seed is 
of the same substance as the plant. And the seed is transformed into the plant, but the glory of the plant is so much greater than the seed that you rarely look at a plant and go, oh yeah, I remember it's seed. Instead, you're supposed to look at the seed and go, this is going to be a beautiful tree. Does that make sense? The glory of what is coming so surpasses what we are now that it will be like a seed and a plant. Having said that, the seed and the plant are the same thing, the same substance. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. I don't want to ask how many of you have ever said that somebody has a heavenly body. But I myself have described my wife's body as heavenly. You know what I didn't mean by heavenly? I didn't mean that it was ghost-like. I didn't mean when I said heavenly that uh, uh, it could no longer be um, touched. Heavenly was a description. And here, heavenly is also a description. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. This next verse helps you understand in what way heavenly bodies is a description. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. Would you not say that the sun, the moon, and the stars are in the heavens? Because if you were Hebrew, you would. In fact, the word for the stellar realm is the same as the word that is used for God's presence. In fact, they are ordered, the first heaven and the second heaven, and a third heaven. And there's a reason for that. The first is the sky, the second is the stellar realm, and the third is trying to describe that place where God dwells, and they knew that it was not a location, it was a rule. Now, the reason that I'm saying that is when it says you have a heavenly body, don't be mistaken. This does not mean that you become Casper the ghost. It means in the same way that the things that are on the earth have a certain kind of splendor, but not like the stellar realm, you will have a splendor greater than the earth like the stellar realm. It is not telling you ghostly. It is telling you it will be uh, more glorious like the stellar realm. Have you ever looked up on a beautiful day and seen a blazing star? Yes, you see the sun every day. People have worshipped it all over the world. It has mass. It can be touched. It can be weighed. It can be quantified. It is not so spiritual that it is not material or real. It is material and real, and yet somehow or another it is beyond us and beyond our touch now. Does that make sense to you? I think anybody that thinks rightly about this can see the wisdom of what I'm saying. Revelation 1-7 becomes very important to this discussion then. Revelation 1-7 says, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. If at Jesus' coming, the dead in Christ are going to raise. If at Jesus' coming, there is a resurrection of the dead. If the bodies that went in the earth are going to come out of the earth transformed at his coming and every eye has to see his coming, it ought to be impossible for you to believe or construct a scenario in which everybody on the earth saw Jesus coming and all of the dead raised to meet him and it was missed by every historian in the world. 
And yet 2 Timothy 2 has exactly that misunderstanding in it. 2 Timothy 2.17 Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. What were they saying? The resurrection happened and you missed it. Now, why is that like gangrene? It's not like gangrene because they're overtly evil. That's not the point. The point is, if the resurrection has already happened, there is no hope left for Israel. There is no hope left for the rest of the people. We are living only to live. If there is no resurrection of the dead yet in our future, then you are in a damned physical body forever. Maybe that's why we're inventing heaven stories. We've misunderstood the importance of the resurrection, of transformation, and we're looking for a new location. You don't get a new location. You get a transformation, and it's already begun in you. The kingdom has already begun in you. It's already transforming your very spirit, already transforming your mind, will, and emotions, and it will blow the doors off of your physical body at his coming. Oh, man, that is such good news. If you're like me and your body is growing in ways that you didn't plan for it to. I can't believe I only got one amen there. But it's true. You are a bunch of slender, good-looking people. Handsome, all of you. There is hope for us. If you don't like where your hairline is, there is hope for you. I don't have time, and at this point, I don't think it's necessary. I simply want to tell you in John 20, they touched Jesus. Jesus ate with them. He was spiritual, and yet he was very physical, very material, much like the angels throughout the Word. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're comparing our earthly garment, our earthly habitation to a tent. The heavenly habitation is not somewhere else, it is simply considered permanent. If what you have now is wearing out, what you will be given will never wear out. That's the point. We have somehow misconstrued that from leaving here and going there, when in reality what is happening is what is perishable is going to be swallowed by something that will never perish. A transformation. You see, the Christian life from beginning to end is about your transformation. If you put your faith in a new location, then you may have your faith in something that is not the good news. The good news is whatever your situation is now, no matter how dead, no matter how dry, no matter how far gone, God will transform it. Do you hear the difference and the implication of the difference? If you need a new location, you may go from location to location. As Keith Green once said, running to the end of the highway, but never finding what you were looking for. If what you believe, though, is that all of God's energy and power is in the resurrection, then he can take any situation that you're in and he can bring life out of it. Now tell me, what is the practical implication of a belief that in any situation, no matter how dead, God can bring life out of it? That'll spread the kingdom of God all over the world. Peyton, would you please make your way up here? When we place our faith in a Greek Olympus-like myth, the results are compounding. Say compounding. Theological error. 
But even more damaging than those errors are the consequences of the attitude that the errors are perpetuating. It's a lack of responsibility for our lives, a lack of responsibility for our environment, a lack of responsibility for our fellow man, and a lack of responsibility to the world around us. Your goal becomes to escape to a better place. Your aim to live in a ghastly, ghostly plane. I'm suggesting that's an insult to your design. In short, you trade the blessed hope for a beastly hoax. Why would you endure? Why would you labor? Why would you be transformed if your goal has been perverted into being transported somewhere else? Conversely, considering what I'm saying today, when your aim is not transportation to Olympus, but transformation into Christ, you learn to stand. You learn to persevere. You learn to prevail and persist until you have transformed everyone around you, everything around you, and you yourself have been transformed. See, one is the attitude of Christ sent to save. The other is the attitude of some kind of coward sent to escape. We need to be transformed into a resurrected eternal inheritance of God on earth. That starts with your actions today, don't you think? You become a physical reality, an ambassador for the kingdom of God on earth. More than that, you're demonstrating that the prayer of Jesus Christ is being answered. So how on earth do I answer Jesus' prayer? Does that sound egotistical to you, that I would answer Jesus' prayer? When he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you are doing the will of God on earth, you are answering the prayer of Jesus. When you are doing the will of God on earth and your own body is transformed into a glorified representative of the kingdom of God, then the prayer of Jesus will have come to its fulfillment called the kingdom of God on earth. If we just seek to go somewhere else, then Jesus' prayer goes unanswered. Jesus did not pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Take them to your kingdom somewhere else. He said, your kingdom come. Somehow or another, the Protestant world has lost this perspective. If you will regain this perspective, you will start to see hope where right now you see death. You will start to see responsibility. Right now, you may seek to be raptured from that responsibility. My hope in teaching you this is number one, you will know the anchor of the Bible is the resurrection of the dead. Not just Jesus, yours too. Secondly, that it will affect the way that you see every situation around you, the relationship that's not yet restored. God is able to breathe into it. What is the valley of Ezekiel's dry bones if not a man looking at the hope of God that Israel would be glorified and seeing nothing but death, nothing but bones, nothing that God could even work with and God confronts his unbelief. He says, can these bones live? I don't know. Only you know. God had been telling them since Eve. Eve would be the mother of all of the living. He'd been telling them since Abraham, every one of those dry bones out there will come to life. He'd been telling them from Isaiah's day, the dead will rise. He'd been telling them since Job's day, their eyes that are now rotten will come back and they will see the Redeemer standing on the earth. 
This was to teach the believer the overcoming faith that never quits. It's the difference between being some kind of lollipop or being a DCD, a Legio Fulminata, an LCM, a man that looks at adversity and says, this is an opportunity to transform me and the world around me. That is what you are. When your aim is not transportation to Olympus, but transformation into Christ, you become the change the world is hoping to see. You become the physical reality of the kingdom. You answer Jesus' prayer. Now's a good time to ask you, are you more prone to want to leave a problematic situation or to believe that you were sent there by God to transform it? Because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? You ever been in an argument with somebody that you love very much? Maybe you're in an eternal covenant together. But the thought enters your mind that this is not going to work. And you want to make sure that people know it wasn't your fault. That's the result of the kind of thinking that wants to be transported, not transformed. Because resurrected thinking looks at that and goes, I don't really like what I'm seeing today. But God can bring life out of death no matter how yucky that statement was. Are you tempted in your relationships to give ultimatums? If you do this, I will never have anything to do with you again. See, that kind of thinking is not resurrected thinking. Resurrected thinking says this may be what they are today, but God can bring something extraordinary tomorrow. I want you to understand what I'm fighting for here. This is life-changing ministries, not except life-as-it-is ministries. You, you follow me? You know that we don't pat you on the back and feed you cherries here. Well, the other side of it is we believe that you become more every day that you're in the kingdom. You are not biding time until you can catch a greyhound somewhere else. When we begin to think like this, no problem becomes unsolvable. Nothing becomes too... Are you more prone to wait to act because the Lord will fix it all in the end anyway? See, that is being negligent or derelict in your duty. You were put here to change it, not put here to wait until someone else does. Have you pacified yourself with non-biblical axioms? All that matters is that we get to heaven. You know how many times in a day I hear that as a pastor? Sometimes I get the addition to it. All you really got to do is just believe. Everybody who says that to me is, is someone that would never understand James when they met him. I will show you my faith by what I do. I don't believe that the man who says all you have to do believes, believes at all. He just speaks. He's waiting to be transported somewhere else. If you believe, you know what you'll do? Be transformed and transform everyone around you. It will show up in your actions. So when I'm telling you these things, it's because my hope is that you will begin to breathe life into situations that are hopeless right now. Our church has been attacked by despair. Our church has been attacked by adversity from the enemy. We are actually losing people we're not supposed to lose, and I know that. I don't mind losing ones we're supposed to. I mind very much losing ones we're not supposed to. You know why, though? Because somewhere in the fight, we got discouraged and we began to look for an easier road. 
You, there is no easier road. There is one kind of Christianity. There's been one hope. It's always been one hope. And it looks at the worst situation on earth, a holocaust, if you will, and says, I will survive this one way or another. And I will never bow my knee to this world. That's what we're fighting for here today. I pray that you hear the Spirit telling you, whatever your situation, you don't have to accept the circumstances. God will not take you from the circumstance. John 17, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He will protect you through the circumstance and he will do what no one thought could be done, like moving a deportation date, like healing a baby. Like, can I tell you God is with you? Can I tell you that he wants to change every detail that is opposing you? But it requires you trusting him to do that. The last thing that I want to say to you is the only people that will ever inherit the kingdom. It's Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Only he who believes the right things. Not everyone will enter heaven. Only he who at the right creed. Knowing what you know now, listen to what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, which is on earth, and you would have to be resurrected. But only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Your resurrected body will reflect your obedience here on earth. And you cannot enter into eternal life without striving to transform yourself and the world around you now. That's what the Holy Spirit has given you for. He was hovering over the chaos in the beginning. And he's hovering over your chaos now. And he's waiting for the agent of God, the light, you are sons of the light, to show up and take the planet back for the kingdom of God. Could you stand to your feet?